Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Oh. Hi everyone, Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And is Paw Patrol copaganda or is it not that deep? And like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And Marcel, since we are talking about history today, I want you to tell me about your favorite historical period in the sorting chat. Do you have a favorite historical period? I feel like I really do. Okay, wait, why don't you go first? And I'm going to think about it because literally no one has ever asked me this question before. And I want to hear yours. And then I'll decide whether or not I'm just going to copy what you say. (laughs) I mean, if you copy what I say, it's going to be really funny. (laughs) I think there's a few ways of thinking about this. Like, is there a period you really like learning about and reading about like you really like reading the literature from that period or like secretly if you were ever going to become a weird historical reenactment larper (laughs) that would be the the period you larped or like if you could travel back in time what's the period that you would travel back to which you know for everybody who isn't a white man it's like a significantly shorter span of time than (laughs) well i would like all right that would be nice Yeah, But I am just, I have a, like, I was going to say lifelong, but truly since I was 13, maybe, obsession with the expat artist community in Paris in the 1930s, like 1920s and 30s. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know this about me, right? Like, the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas was a very pivotal, important text of my queer awakening. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I read just like a ton of biographies of different artists and figures from the time. And just everybody was just like louche. Like they were all just like in a cafe smoking a cigarette, (laughs) 
you know, that fucking awful Woody Allen movie where Owen Wilson travels Midnight back. Midnight in, in Paris. Yes, yes, it's that. Except could we take Woody Allen and Owen Wilson out of the equation entirely? And instead I just want to hang out in the cafe and hear Ernest Hemingway tell a story about punching an elephant or something. <laughs> I would love to see any of the people who punched Ernest Hemingway in the face punch Ernest Hemingway in the face. I want to be one of the people who punched Ernest Hemingway in the face. Gosh, this is such a tough question. Like, I really love historical period fiction, and I love historical period television and film. I'm really excited to watch the A League of Their Own TV series, which I'm not allowed to watch until we finished moving. Is that, sorry, is that a rule you gave yourself or a rule Trevor gave you? It's a combination of the two, but because I did not respect his wishes when he said he did not want to buy a house, I feel like the <laughs> least I can do is respect his wishes when he asks me not to start a binge-worthy television program. <laughs> well, you're in the middle of renovating a movie. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Yes, yes. So, you know. So if you could go back, you would go back to, like the 1940s and join an all-lesbian baseball league. Yes. I just want to go to a period where my dreams can come true, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the past for sure. <laughs> what do we know about the past? Hard to say, but definitely things were good then. Oh, <laughs> totally. Today's episode is all about how we remember history and on which, please, we remember our own history by brushing up on it in revision. Brushing up on it and not brushing up against it, like in a sort of seductive way. We can also rub our bodies onto the history <laughs> of our own episodes if you would like to do that. I feel like the obvious place to start would be with Orientalism, which was in the reboot, our first like really intensive discussion of the politics of representation. Uh, we talked about this way back in book one, episode two. We talked about the ideologies at work in how we choose to represent cultures, places, events, people, etc. Edward Said talked about Orientalism as a set of techniques for quote-unquote, dealing with the Orient, quote, by making statements about it, authorizing views of it, describing it, by teaching it, settling it, ruling over it. In short, Orientalism as a Western style for dominating, restructuring, and having authority over the Orient, end quote. So right off, we started thinking about how language has power and how those in positions of power naturalize their own ideologies through the production of knowledge through what we usually refer to as a discourse. We usually refer, like you and I usually, not, not one not usually one. refers to it. <laughs> what one commonly calls a discourse. Discourse. We also came back to our idea of, you know, discourse in our episode on archival studies when we talked about the production of knowledge and the figure of the uh archaeon 
archon. Honestly, I can't remember and I can't be arsed to look it up. But this is like Derrida's like the guy who collects and stores information and gets to decide what is and is not relevant. Mm, like Dumbledore. Yeah, exactly. We talked about Dumbledore as being the Archon, maybe. But basically, like, who's in control of putting together an official account of historical memory? And, you know, that, of course, leads me to think about my favorite quotation from Orientalism by Edward Said, and the really interesting connection that we can see here between Said's description of, quote, the Orientalist at work in the role of a clerk putting together a very wide assortment of files in a large cabinet marked the Semites, end quote. And the way Derrida writes about the archive as a physical site of power, specifically power over the accumulation and interpretation of text. So I guess we could sum up that connection as history is written by the victors, which... I'm just guessing that our guest will have something to say about. Yeah, I bet. But before we get there, a little more revision. Ooh. We've talked about the production of knowledge in a lot of different ways. You know, we can't stop talking about discourse. Can't stop, won't stop. And power knowledge. And we've unpacked a lot of different ideologies. But one through line has been thinking about genre as a set of expectations that like structures the kinds of stories that can be told. We looked at chosen one narratives, of course, and at the gothic and at time travel and at life writing. And in terms of life writing in particular, we focused on understanding that life writing should not be treated as like a transparent representation of the reality of the past. Mm-hmm. So instead, in that episode on life writing, we looked at the work of Sudoni Smith and Julia Watson, and they helped us ask better questions about life writing, like how it's working to establish truth claims and what relationship it has to externally verifiable events. And we concluded in that conversation that different kinds of life writing written in different historical periods and different cultural contexts all have like different relationships to history. Speaking of relationships to history, we also talked about how the historical leaks into the contemporary in our episode on hauntology featuring our guest Lydia Nicole. God, I loved that episode. Through the concept of hauntology, we learn to think about how the past and the present might not be discrete, easily divisible things, but rather that we are haunted by the past, by the discriminatory ways in which the past is represented, and by the lost futures that we imagined in the past. Particularly pertinent to today's conversation is the way representations of history are haunted by the stories that aren't being told and by the people who have been erased. And we asked what haunts the margins of Hogwarts, from the literal ghosts in its halls to the erasure of the house elves from Hogwarts, a history. Mm, love learning not to trust historical textbooks. Mm-mm-mm. And now that we're on to book seven, which is obsessed with the flawed ways we attempt to remember the past, I think we need to dive a little further into this question of historical memory. So are you ready, Marcel? I'm so ready. All right, let's do it. Let's do it.
Would it be accurate to say that our representations of history are transformations of actual events? Transfigurations of actual events? Transpositions of actual events? There's only one way to find out. Let's meet today's visiting professor in Transfiguration class. Our guest today is Shira Lurie, pronouns she, her. Shira is an assistant professor of American history at St. Mary's University, located in Mi'kma'ki, the unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq First Nation. Her research focuses on popular politics and dissent in the early United States, as well as historical memory and representations of the American founding in popular culture. Her writing has been published in The Washington Post, The Toronto Star, The Chronicle Herald, and Inside Higher Ed. In her dwindling spare time, (laughs) she co-hosts a podcast with her brother entitled The Zucchini Warriors that explores Canadian children's author Gordon Corman's early works. Sorry, I'm just finding this out, Shira, as I'm reading this, and I can't wait, can't wait to listen. She likes to think of it as which pleases much less rigorous, much less successful younger cousin. Welcome, Shira. Thank you. Beyond thrilled to be here. This is so exciting. So now we're going to talk about the Zucchini Warriors. For the entirety of the rest of this recording, let's talk about Gordon Corman. Coach, have you read any Gordon Corman? Is he as important outside of Canada? I don't think he is. It's pretty niche. I'm actually not sure how important he is in Canada because I have never heard of this person. And his last name is so similar to mine, it makes me wonder if our ancestors originated from the same tiny Russian village. (laughs) He's famous for writing an extremely successful book about going to summer camp when he was like 12? His first book he wrote as a grade seven English project. So he's been he's been writing books for for a while. And so, Marcel, I'm a little bit concerned that your citizenship might be revoked or something. Yeah. Pretty, pretty central to the Canadian identity. Name your top heritage minute quick. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh, I smell burnt toast, doctor. That's about Dr. Penfield. Now what? Uh, what is it, Mrs. Gold? Burnt toast. Dr. Penfield, I can smell burnt toast. Shira, it's such a delight to have you here. I am so excited to talk about history. Can we maybe start with why the phrase history is written by the victors is like... Icky? Icky? Yeah, great. That's a great, <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. I think to begin, we have to understand that when people are saying history is written by the victors, I actually think they mean historical memory is written by the victors. Oh, I, what's the difference between <laughs> history and historical memory, Shira? Let me break it down. <laughs> Are we doing are we doing aggressive first names right now? I like it. <laughs> yes, we are. Marcel. <laughs> so the difference, I mean, it's important because people use history and historical memory kind of interchangeably. They seem at least very similar. They're actually pretty different. So I want to define history as a discipline in which historians advance arguments about the past based on their interpretations of historical evidence. Okay. But historical memory is a cultural construction of narratives about a community's shared past 
that are often shaped by contemporary concerns. So I hope you notice some key differences there, right? Yes. Historians versus a cultural construction. Mm. Evidence versus contemporary concerns. Arguments versus narratives. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we might distinguish, for example, between a historian's tracing of the Franklin expedition based on the kinds of evidence available and maybe sort of an unpacking of how indigenous oral knowledge was systematically undervalued in such a way that like actively sort of disrupted the possibility of settlers knowing what happened in the Franklin expedition and then compare that to the way that former Prime Minister Stephen Harper announced the successful finding of the, was it the Erebus that they found or the terror? I feel like it must have been the Erebus because I think I would have remembered if it was the terror and I would have made some very specific jokes about that. It was probably the Erebus, but like for sure they found it in a bay that was just like, it was just everybody was like, oh yeah, you mean the bay with that ship in it? For sure. Yeah, it's right over there. But then Harper makes this like, you know, big sort of press release announcement that's like, we did it. Canada triumphs again. Like, over what? I don't... Sorry, it's my favorite story ever is the way that they found that ship in a place where all of you were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's a ship there. Did you ask? I hope this episode features a lot more of just kind of like random historical examples that Hannah just has at her, her fingertips. I'm not a history buff. I forget names and dates, except for people that I really hate. You're lost in the Franklin sauce? I'm lost in the Franklin sauce. Frank's hot sauce has left has left me adrift. Hannah, could you put this in terms of Marvel movies for me? Marcel, I can't, I can't think of a Marvel example, but what I can think of is something that is essentially the Marvel Ooh. of popular historical memory, which is Hamilton. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton! Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Hamilton is not history. It's a redeployment of history for the purposes of making a contemporary argument. And if you use it as a historical text, you're going to miss some details. That's right. And it touches on history, right? So all historical, this is why it gets slippery and confusing. It's ostensibly historical and there are historical details in it. There are even quotes from historical sources. So it feels historical. And there's a lot to obviously unpack in that. But it's not history, as Hannah said. It's shaping a very specific narrative. And it is shaped definitely by contemporary concerns. I feel like those of us who are learning about things for the first time have a tendency to be like, oh, so that thing is bad, but this thing is good. And uh, here on Which Please, we're constantly like, no, 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 no. It's not about one thing is bad and one thing is good. These are just things that happened. So Shira, am I understanding correctly that it's not that historical memory is bad and history is good or vice versa. These are just methods of thinking about the past. I think that's fair to say in the abstract, when we look at some examples, historical memory is often pretty bad, just like a lot of history is often pretty bad. But it's, it's also because 
um, you know, of who and what shapes historical memory mm-hmm. and why historical memory is being shaped in certain ways. That makes a lot of sense. Like, I feel like historical memory is like contested in a really heated way. Like, the tearing down of Confederate statues is a fight over historical memory. Exactly. And this question of like, we're erasing history by tearing down these statues versus we are saying that these are not figures who should be memorialized in positive ways or like, you know, debates in Canada about like Ryerson University being renamed Toronto Metropolitan University because Ryerson was like the architect of the residential school system. That's why they renamed it. So like, you know, we're, we're, we're constantly having, I think, these arguments about like what our relationship to historical memory is going to be. Okay. Those are really great examples because we can see how power is at work with historical memory. We made it pretty far in without me saying the word power, but it's which please. So we got to bring it in. Well, but it's time now. Yes, please. So, you know, if you think about a Confederate monument, for instance, or the name of a school, you know, you're marking a public space very clearly. Mm -hmm. Mm. You're saying this is who we honor. This is what we honor. There's a a historian named Erin Thompson who wrote a book called Smashing Statues. And she says, monuments are not history lessons. They're pledges of allegiance. Mm -hmm. And so... You have to you have to think, as Hannah says, what does it mean for a Confederate monument to be standing in a public square? What does it mean if your ancestors were enslaved or even if you just look like someone who was enslaved and a victim of the Confederacy? What does it mean if you don't? Why do you want that monument in that public space? So again, it, it touches on history and it feels like it is a kind of neutral statement about this is something or someone that existed in the past, but it's really all about power and shaping contemporary narratives about what society looks like and should look like now. Yeah, okay, that makes sense because when people say, when people get upset about taking down a statue or renaming a school or whatever, and they say, like, you're erasing history, they're not concerned about the erasure of history. Like, they don't care about all the other parts of history that have been erased. They care about losing their positions of power, even if that's not what they think they care about. That's ostensibly what's happening. Yeah, that's so that's so nicely put. When you When you have a monument, especially to one single human being, then you are erasing so much of history. And it's, uh, yeah, I think the idea that anyone learns history from a statue is, uh, to be honest, a little bit foolish, to put it mildly. This reminds me, there was a sort of, there was some discourse happening on Twitter recently where somebody was like, you know, call me old fashioned, but I think that journalists, like historians, should be totally neutral and shouldn't think about politics. <laughs> Gross. And, you know, obviously, then everybody roasted them. But a writer who I quite like, Michael Hobbs, was responding to this and talking about how the top way that we lose sight of the non neutrality and non objectivity of journalism is by 
not paying attention to what stories are over covered and what mm. stories are under covered. Mm -hmm. So it's not just it's not like anything in that particular story is wrong. It's just like, wow, we're telling a lot of stories about that thing, huh? And just not talking at all about this other thing. And that's I feel like historical memory is a lot of that. It's like, it's not incorrect that this guy was here and did a thing. <laughs> The issue isn't that you invented this guy or invented the things he did. The issue is like, why does that guy get a statue? Who decides? Who gets to decide who gets a statue? Shira? Shira? Who? I don't get to decide. Is that what you're going to ask me? I want a statue! <laughs> Shira, who gets to decide? People with power. People with capital. Oh, like a statue making money. They got statue making money. They got statue making positions. They got uh, statue commissions. I just heard on the radio this morning that the government of Alberta, currently headed by now widely discredited human Jason Kenney, who is on his way out, is unveiling a statue of Sir Winston Churchill in Calgary. <laughs> The premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, defamed human, has said that it's because he was uh, one of, if not the greatest defender of democracy in the 20th century. And so ergo Calgary shall have a statue of him. Anyway, so, uh, coach, I'm so sorry. I just remembered it and I just I just needed to talk about it. <laughs> You just probably shouldn't go in either. But that ha that's what happens with a lot of Confederate monuments is that the people uh, that these statues depict, like uh, Robert E. Lee, for instance, often never in their lifetimes were ever in the places that house these statues, mm -hmm. which really reminds us that they are just pledges of allegiance. They are not. They are not history lessons. Hannah, can I go back to what you said a second ago about uh, this sort of quest for neutrality or a or a neutral history because it really is a, a trap that people hide behind both with historical memory and with history right because history is a product of choices you choose as you said before what to include what not to include what to emphasize what not to emphasize what sources to trust what sources to be skeptical of mm. You can think about it with, you know, Hogwarts of History. You mentioned house elves are not in Hogwarts of History. That doesn't mean Hogwarts of History is incorrect or untrue. We might consider it incomplete. Mm -hmm. We might consider a different historical work on Hogwarts maybe better in certain ways or more representative in certain ways. Mm. But the quest for a neutral history is a fool's errand. And um, it does feed into historical memory in terms of this this hiding behind facts that these these people existed, therefore a monument to them is neutral or a school in their name is neutral. But it's a product of choices. As you said, we choose who to valorize and remember and we choose who to marginalize and forget. Yeah. So I think we have a pretty good sense of like who we in in Western culture in particular have a tendency to memorialize, which is the Winston Churchills of the world. <laughs> the greatest defenders of democracy. But I would really love to talk a little bit more about this question of the way that historical memory ties into contemporary concerns. So like, what work is historical memory doing 
now. Like, we can talk about how it distorts history, but, like, why are we so interested in using history to think about ourselves in the present? What a great question. Fantastic question. I think, you know, as we said before, it's people with capital, it's people with power who who shape historical memory. And they shape it, whether intentionally or not, to ensure that we are surrounded by narratives that reinforce that they are the ones, or people like them are the ones that should hold power, that should have capital. And so even though we can we can look at you know different the historical memories of different communities or countries we can still find kind of common threads i actually think of them kind of as genre conventions which i thought i thought you would like <laughs> please say more about this <laughs> oh my god the literature scholars immediately perk up yeah. are there genres of history shira is that are there genres of historical memory I'm sure that we could spend a lot of time talking about that. Coach shakes her head. Yeah, exactly. Coach is like, nah, move it along. <laughs> Let me give you like the, the basic highlights of what you might find in standard historical memories, especially on the kind of national level. So first of all, you're going to have some key heroes. You're going to have your Winston Churchills, for instance. These people, unsurprisingly, tend to be any or all of the following, white, cis male, heterosexual, able-bodied, and or a member of the elite. Mm. Mm. There tends to be pivotal moments or events in this story, and those moments usually feature violence. So it's usually about a war or a rebellion or even just like a particular battle. There tends to be certain values ascribed to this historical story that either power it or give it meaning, but these values are never defined. So we just get a lot of vague buzzwords like liberty or strength or independence or equality. And then there tends to be an importance placed on institutions. So either institutions were created, rescued, or reformed during these moments. Mm. So those are kind of some common tropes we might see. And then we can definitely see how that, those would feed into certain narratives or assumptions, like that certain individuals are born to hold power and that community action or consensus building or ordinary people are not important. Might be one narrative we could uh, <laughs> deduce from mm -hmm, all of that. Mm -hmm. We might also see how certain people can claim to defend or inherit certain values that they might have the, the best claim to power. They might be the ones entrusted to power based on that narrative. Mm -hmm. We might understand that institutional reform is treated as impossible or even an insult. Mm. Yeah, an insult to, to the past or to the country's foundation. So when you asked if historical memory is neutral or good or bad, Based on how it tends to turn out, it is really conservative, right? And it, it can be really dangerous. Right. So something like Hamilton might be fun, but isn't necessarily good. Oh, I just want to spend an hour talking about Hamilton. It's so interesting because it is doing some really radical things with historical memory. And also there's a reason why it was so popular. 
That's right. I mean, yes, I teach a class on Hamilton. I've written about Hamilton. I could talk for a long time about it, but you'll notice that it purports to be pretty progressive, right? It's got like a pro-immigrant message. It, it claims to be a kind of beacon of racial justice, which is, we could talk about that quite a bit, but it is really presenting a pretty conservative narrative of the American founding, one that's definitely grounded in this great man theory, that's definitely grounded in uh, an assumed righteousness of the American nation that's grounded in violence. So there's a lot there's a lot we could say about Hamilton, but we can see that even in that kind of potentially progressive packaging, how deep the cultural purchase of some historical memory and the narratives it it promotes goes. I want us to do a whole other episode on Hamilton. I'm absolutely fascinated by this, but I know that there's a game ahead and I don't want us to run out of time. And so just before we play the game, before we play the game, I want to know, Shira, if you have brought us far enough that you can now answer the question of why it is a problem to say that history is written by the victors. Well, I hope, Marcel, can you answer it now? Oh, hell no. Okay, yes. Wait, let me try. Let me try. Let me try. Okay. We'll see. We'll see how we'll see if I've been paying attention. (laughs) Owls before owls, you know, history is written by the victors. Remember history versus historical memory history. Okay, so to suggest that history is written by the victors, it's not referring to the people in positions of dominant social power who are working as historians and making the history textbooks, it is suggesting that history is a series of events in which people either win or lose, and that the people who lose are no longer even figured in the current state of things now. And it kind of conflates history and historical memory in this way that makes historical memory seem like it's not not a cultural thing, but like a like a fact, like a series of facts. And you don't get to question facts because the fundamental nature of a fact is that it is objective. Is this, is any of this right? <laughs> uh, I think almost all of that was right. <laughs> okay, what? <laughs> I think that was really good. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's it's worth saying that as as you folks have pointed out, right, the archive is a source of power and it's, and I don't want to diminish that or challenge that in any way. I think that that is very true. But, you know, there are historians working to read into archival silences and recover marginalized voices. And part of the blame lies with historians. There is a way in which history has not been able to successfully insert itself into historical memory. And so because people use history and historical memory interchangeably, and tend to be thinking of historical memory when they're thinking of history, and therefore are thinking of these simplified, erasing narratives. That is how we get that historical memory is written by the quote-unquote victors. I think there's a historian named David Blight who has kind of summarized the differences between history and historical memory nicely, and sort of gives us an idea of just how kind of different or separate the forces that produce and reproduce them are. So that might help, might help us out a little bit. So Blight says, quote, 
If history is shared and secular, memory is often treated as a sacred set of absolute meanings and stories possessed as the heritage or identity of a community. Memory is often owned, history interpreted. Memory is passed down through generations, history is revised. Memory often coalesces in objects, sites, and monuments. History seeks to understand context in all their complexity. History asserts the authority of academic training and canons of evidence. Memory carries the often more immediate authority of community membership and experience. So they really are, although clearly related in some ways, in other ways, really siloed off from, mm-hmm. from each other. Yeah. So historical memory is constructed by the powerful might be a better phrase than history is written by the victors. Love that. Do you think we can get that get that going? Do you think that'll spread around? Yeah, somebody attribute it to Winston Churchill and then we will. <laughs> oh my God, make one of those pictures, like a picture with Winston Churchill's face and then the quote at, at the bottom, put it on Facebook. Let's do it. And it's, it's just gonna, it's just gonna go. There you go. Facts now. Nice. All right. Do we have time for like a short round of this game? Coach says we can play one round. A rapid fire round. Okay. So that we could delve more deeply into one example before we get into Harry Potter. And the one that I talk about most in my classes is the American Revolution. So just quick refresher, American Revolution, when 13 American colonies declared themselves independent from the British Empire and then won the War of Independence and formed the United States of America. So you don't have to be American or in America to have experienced the historical memory of American Revolution and the founding. So here is a little game I like to play, especially with my Canadian students, and I call it Revolutionary Roundup. (laughs) And in Marcel, (laughs) you're going to take turns naming examples of the ways in which Americans or even just society generally remembers the American Revolution. This can be pieces of pop culture, a tourist site, a holiday, anything like that. Whoever comes out first will lose. If you run out in the same round, coach gets a chance to steal. <gasps> coach just has to come in with one example and we'll take the victory. This is incredible. And Hannah, since you did not say that history is written by the victors, you get to go first. <laughs> That's great because I wrote the script. <laughs> <laughs> she wrote the script. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's not what the historical record says. We clearly heard Marcel say it, so... Yeah, the historical record clearly demonstrates that Marcel said it. So, um, Hamilton. Go tell the bees that I am gone by Diana Gabaldon. Incredible. It's the latest Outlander novel. Uh, the national anthem. Is that about the American Revolution? Hard to say. I mean, not really, but we'll allow it. <laughs> Go I think it's the War of 1812, but let's keep going. Yeah. <laughs> The movie the the post the postman starring Mel Gibson. <laughs> I don't know. There's a movie called The Patriot about the Revolution that's starring Mel Gibson. It's very possible Mel Gibson was in two movies about the Revolution. No, the po- do I mean the Patriot? Yeah, it's not the Postman you're thinking about. That has Kevin Costner in it. Oh fuck! Yeah, I can't. I've okay. Well, both those. That's two for me. Two. That's two for me. <laughs> the movie Independence Day starring Will Smith. We will allow it. <laughs> Okay, so Hannah said the movie Independence Day. Okay, okay. Uh, how the Pledge of Allegiance? Uh, Independence Day, the day. Really good, really, really good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, 
the phrase the 4th of July. We will allow it. It's very similar to Hannah's, but we will allow it. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) She's struggling. We're going to give you three, two, one. Nothing. Over to you, Marcel, with a chance for the victory. Stars and stripes. The, the the phrase the 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 phrase not unlike not unlike the Fourth of July the phrase stars and stripes. All right, Coach. I thought that you were going to walk away with it, but Marcel <laughs> took it. Congratulations! <laughs> very very good. My brain is nothing if not just a just a a huge long list of uh, cultural phrases and archetypes. <laughs> This was your moment to shine and pay it off. Okay, well, with my sweet, sweet victory on my wings, I feel ready to soar into owls. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now, if everyone can still remember what we've discussed so far, maybe we'll have a chance to learn from it in Owls. This is really exciting because I feel like I can finally understand what's happening because we're putting it in the context of Harry Potter. And this whole podcast has like really reshaped my brain. And so if, if I'm learning about something and it's not in the context of Harry Potter, I uh, I struggle. So, okay, so let's talk about it. Shira, where do you want to start? So I think as I was rereading, what really jumped out to me was how central Dumbledore is to the historical memory of this world which obviously sort of aligns with what we said before about key key individuals, key heroes. Oh, he is like the great white man par excellence. Absolutely. So we start with that obituary. Alphaeus Doge is how I want to say it. I have no idea if that... That's how Stephen Fry says it in the audiobook that I just listened to. <laughs> then it's canon. That's all the evidence we need. Yeah. <laughs> so, what, so what would you folks say is sort of the narratives we get about Dumbledore and the and the history of the wizarding world from that obituary. I mean that is for sure a like conservative memorialization of great white man par excellence, right? It's like he is being positively memorialized, like but it's a very sort of romantic history of him. It constantly frames his importance in terms of his relationship to institutions and historical conflicts, as you were saying, is characteristic of this kind of memorialization. So it's about his time at Hogwarts, then it's about his like major contributions to study, his role as like chief warlock of the Wizengamot, his triumph in the battle with Grindelwald, right? So it's all of these like, he won a big fight, he was famous at an important school, he you know, he was an important part of these major institutions. And so 
by virtue of of memorializing him like that, it simultaneously establishes his significance as a figure while also reinforcing a view of the world in which those institutions and battles are the most important thing. Another thing that I think is maybe worth commenting on, especially if we're going to maybe compare this obituary to Rita Skeeter's book, is the fact that it frames all of Dumbledore's personal experiences as struggles that he overcame that, like, improved his moral character, you know? So, like, he experienced these difficulties, he sacrificed in these ways, he suffered these losses, and all to which, you know, produced the great man that is Dumbledore. There's this phrase that I've encountered that is the idea of Whiggish memory. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of teleological version of memory. So like everything that has happened in the past has been leading up to the present and things have been like steadily improving so that the present is the best things have ever been. And so you always look back at the past to find the things that led to the present as opposed to paying attention to the things in the past that like <laughs> didn't in any way lead to the present, which are there like just as many, if not more. And I think we see that's kind of like a Whiggish history of Dumbledore in which every detail included is something that like culminated in his greatness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. We, and we get because of this sort of Whiggish version of Dumbledore and this sort of idea that he had so much circumstantial tragedy that he had to overcome a real kind of good versus evil narrative right and i know we don't care about authorial intent but like rowling was pretty heavy-handed and she dates the the duel with grindelwald that's 1945 yeah yeah so i think it's pretty clear how we're meant to be reading this right and it's almost as if harry is kind of the inheritor to that good versus evil legacy that sort of dumbledore defeated grindelwald and now he has to defeat voldemort okay so we have doge's obituary that does these things, right? And then we have Rita Skeeter's book, which is like a scandalous tell-all. So the thing that I want to talk about right now is this flirtation that Dumbledore has with fascism, because both Ron and Hermione try to reassure Harry about it by saying like, well, he was really young. And Harry's like, he's the same age that we are right now. And so I'm just wondering if this experience that Harry is having reading about Dumbledore's like flirtation with fascism is a way of sort of saying like, it's normal to flirt with fascism a little bit when you're young, but once, who does it? But then once you mature, we all have our fascist phase. This is exactly why you should not have individual heroes as the kind of pillars of your historical memory because historical memory wants easy narratives and humans are complex and that's what happens with harry right he sees this letter and he's like look there it is this is what dumbledore believed and hermione says no obviously he matured and his views changed but historical memory doesn't make room for that right which is why you shouldn't build statues to individual people. Mm. Part of what sways him so much, Harry, is that because he is hearing so many different accounts of who Dumbledore was and because Dumbledore himself gave Harry so little to go on, Mm -hmm. Harry has become obsessed with documentary evidence. Mm -hmm. 
one of the difficult things that Harry has to really reconcile is the fact that Rita Skeeter, who we know to be villainous, is actually including real documented historical evidence in her account of Dumbledore. So it becomes it becomes a problem for Harry. He becomes obsessed with like trying to piece together, I don't know, we could say that he's like piecing together the the Dumbledore archives, trying to trying to <laughs> trying to flesh them out a little bit. <laughs> because even though, yeah, even though the ways that she collects her information are nefarious and we know from past books that she is not to be trusted. She is doing history. She is providing historical evidence. Right. And that's a good reminder to us that they're both true and they're both historical accounts. Because remember, history is about different interpretations. It's not one neutral set of facts. And what's kind of troubling about Harry's response is he sees these competing interpretations and he says, no, I need to find the truth. Mm-hmm. And so then he does try to parse that letter from his mother. He does try to hunt down Bethilda Bagshot. And all the while he's saying, I just need to find this one true version of events. And Rowling kind of reinforces that there is one true version of events. Because Dumbledore gets to give the one true version of events. Exactly. Like, you know, from beyond the grave where he cannot be questioned. Harry gets the one power all historians want, which is to talk to dead people and not just read their mail. It's outrageous to me. But (laughs) then we get we get this idea that Dumbledore's account is somehow more true, even though it's just his interpretation of what happened. It's his memory. And so we get this this idea that there that there was actually this one version of events and both the other accounts were kind of somehow somehow missed it a mm, little bit. Missed the mark just a bit. Which harkens back to the way that Dumbledore's memory is constructed in the previous book when he tells Harry that his like pensive memories will be better than other people's <laughs> because his memory is like extra deep like this idea that like Dumbledore being the great man that he is has some inherent right to be the authority of all narratives because he is the person who understands things the best and then just that incredibly silly way that Harry does a like Dumbledore impression in his final confrontation with Voldemort where he like patronizingly tells him about pieces of history that he didn't pay enough attention to. You don't learn, Tom, (laughs) do you? (laughs) That's it. Like, he's really doing a Dumbledore bit in that final confrontation. And it's like, the way he talks down to Voldemort is about being like, I have interpreted history better than you. I have mm-hmm. paid attention to details. You have not. I have become the Archon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about let's talk about monuments, right? Because we've because there's a statue dedicated to the potters in Godric's Hollow. And I am obsessed with it. God, it's such a it's weird, so weird detail. Right? So it's like, weird. okay, how many wizarding families are there in Godric's Hollow? There seems to be two, three: the Dumbledores, the Bagshots, and the Potters. <laughs> yeah, and the Gryffindors and the Peverells. But that's what I'm obsessed with. It's the like fuck is up with Godric's Hollow. <laughs> the Potters get a monument 
in the center of the town square that's big enough that it could be a war memorial. I think it looks like a war memorial to muggles, right? Right. Yes. So it must be very prominent. And these other probably more historically important or at least equally historically important people do not get monuments. I mean, like maybe they do and they're not part of Harry's journey and Marcel's going to give us a devastating fun fact, like baby Harry Mm, played mm -hmm. at the feet of Dumbledore's statue, whatever, but we don't see them. (laughs) And it seems like this would be the central monument if it's in the town square and could be a war memorial. Well, maybe if the other people wanted to have memorials in the wake of their grisly murders or, you know, torturings, they should have given birth to the chosen one. Mm. So this statue can't be more than 15 years old. Doing some quick math in my head. 16. 16. 16, I guess. So do the muggles in Godric's Hollow think that a war memorial went up 16 years ago? (laughs) What war is it memorializing? Perhaps it was dedicated to Winston Churchill, who is the greatest defender of democracy would make a bit more sense (laughs) (laughs) who commissioned the statue why did it never occur to anybody to mention to harry that there is a statue of him like and it's just it's just to the potters right like it's it's before the event takes place that makes them worthy of a statue right like the potters are alive Baby Harry does not have a scar on his head. So it's just about it's So again, it's about memorializing them as people, as individuals. As representative of what we want from wizard kind, perhaps? Just a nice nuclear family? Yeah. And, re- and their sacrifice, right? That they have become sort of stand-ins for all of the sacrifices that happen. But it's so interesting because we are... And we've talked about this a number of times in the context of this book series. We are living in a world that is 15 years after a devastating war in which so many people died and it is barely talked about. Like it's kind of there has been an act of collective forgetting, sort of akin to, you know, that thing that happened in Spain after fascism ended, where the Spanish government legally mandated that everybody had to forget about it. Spain basically was like, in order to move forward from our fascist history, nobody can be tried for any war crimes that they committed under fascism. So like young Spanish people like don't know that like that nice old man down the street tortured people to death for the fascist government. So there has been this kind of post-fascist collective act of forgetting mm-hmm. of a of a really recent event. And so it's so interesting to be like, oh, there's this one statue and nobody talks about it. And there's a plaque. A didactic plaque. What is the statue doing? What is this plaque doing? What do you think? Because I find them very odd. <laughs> I remember reading it the first time being like, oh, I guess it's kind of nice, but ultimately pretty confusing. I, I definitely think they're working in tandem. Can I, I'm going to actually read what the what the plaque says, because I think that it's really interesting. We love our textual evidence. Please do. On this spot, on the night of 31 October 1981, 
Lily and James Potter lost their lives. Their son, Harry, remains the only wizard ever to have survived the killing curse. This house, invisible to muggles, has been left in its ruined state as a monument to the Potters and as a reminder of the violence that tore apart their family. Wow, that never mentions Voldemort! Bingo, it never mentions Voldemort. They died. Hard to say what happened. There was a killing curse. And it's not its not even um, really about sacrifice. They lost their lives. It's a reminder of the violence that tore their family apart. So the, Voldemort's not in here, but also like the active choices that the Potters made that some would argue is why it should be memorialized in the first place is also not there. It's 100% passive voice, right? Like shots were fired. Bodies were relocated to the emergency room. To suggest that violence tore their family apart also suggests that, like, Harry and his parents had a big fight. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't clearly indicate that the violence that tore their family apart came from the outside, you know? Right, right. It reminds me of um, in Berlin, they've left some buildings destroyed as a memorial to the violence of World War II. And so there is this, like, let's leave these signs of the devastation. But by leaving the devastation and erasing details of what caused the devastation, again, what stands out to me is this idea that, like, lots of people were Voldemort sympathizers. Lots of people were Death Eaters. Lots of people were on board or complacent right? The Order of the Phoenix was a small group who were actively fighting. And so it does to me have this feeling of like, we want to memorialize, like we want to mark that these terrible things happened, but we also don't want to take any responsibility for them or actually acknowledge like how they became possible. Because if the narrative is good versus evil, we cannot have a kind of majority or even sizable minority that sided with evil because evil is rare and it's embodied in whatever our anti-hero of our heroes are in our historical narrative. So it doesn't fit with the historical memory of the first war. Yeah. And it ties into that, like that desperate desire to memorialize England as anti-fascist, as the heroes of World War II who overthrew fascism rather than also being full of fascists itself. (laughs) Can we talk about the Ministry Monument? Because that's my favorite of the three monuments. Yes. The Magic is Might, which has replaced a previous monument. Which was a fountain that raised money for, say, Mungo's. Oh, I forgot that it had that function. Harry dumps his whole bag of galleons into it. Yeah. Harry. Yeah. What a hero. What a hero for the people. Am I right, ladies? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Okay. So magic is might. Shira, okay. why is this your favorite? Well, I'm obsessed because Voldemort and the Death Eaters have violently seized control of the government. They are cursing and killing and imprisoning anyone they want to with impunity. So why do they need a monument? Oh my God, it's so interesting. I think it's a pledge of allegiance to the values. So... They've installed a monument in the center of their government. It's a very strong statement of 
this is what we believe. And if you don't believe it, you don't belong, but also you can't do anything about it. And I think by by having it as a monument, it does kind of give it an air of historiosity almost, right? Like, so it does kind of make it seem as if it has been there for a long time, or at least in a few years, it will feel like it has been there for a long time. Right, right, right. Yeah. And it does, the the desire to install this monument, like the desire to infiltrate and control the ministry rather than destroy the ministry, suggests that what they are trying to do, like what Voldemort is trying to do, is build a different wizarding society that will be structured around these values. And he is actively trying to get more people on board with these values. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not just like, oh, we'll, we'll kill. Like either people agree or disagree and the people who disagree we're going to kill and the people who agree get to be in power. And that's hard to see often in the book because the book itself is so obsessed with the idea of good versus evil. And so we don't see a lot of examples of people who we might think of as good being successfully convinced other than Dumbledore himself with his youthful flirtations with fascism, we don't really get to see like a Neville Longbottom being like, all right, well, this won't actually materially change my living conditions in any way. There's room for me in this new society Mm -hmm. and there's terrible consequences for fighting against this. So I guess I'll just go with it. Like particularly the Battle of Hogwarts really encourages us to be like, listen, you're with us or against us. All the Slytherins have to leave. Everybody else is a brave hero fighting fascism. The end. A lot of the stuff about the wizarding world just really does tie into that narrative. Like the fact that all of the wizarding kids go to a special secret school Mm -hmm. that nobody else can go to. Because the other piece that I keep thinking about is that scene where we find out that Petunia wanted to go to Hogwarts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I really think kind of narratively is there to just be like, and that explains why Petunia hated Lily. Yeah. (laughs) She's mean because she was jealous, um, which is the thing that you say about bullies. They're just jealous of you. But it's actually incredibly heartbreaking to be like, here's a magical world full of whimsy and joy and owls and people dressed in bright, fun colors. And it's not for you. You can't come. You're a muggle. What you are in this world is a synonym for things that are boring and terrible. Mm-hmm. Some people have been chosen and you weren't one. Like, it's it's so devastating to say to a bunch of kids, you know what you are? Not special. Fuck right off. And that is how the wizarding world is built of like pulling out people who are special and giving them something special. Mm -hmm. And that is magic is might in a nutshell. Yeah. That makes me remember in the Doge obituary, he cites the um, duel with Grindelwald as a key turning point in magical history. And the other examples he gives is the fall of Voldemort and the statute for international secrecy. I don't know if that's the correct name of the statute, but it's when the decision is made to separate, as you say, to create this kind of segregated world. And that is seen as a key pivotal moment in the history of magic. 
what do we think about the fact that, like, the statute of secrecy, my understanding of its function in the texts is that it's to protect wizards and witches, right? That, like, prior to there was persecution, they were burned at the stake. Yeah, I mean, they weren't. That's one of the absurd details of this world right. <laughs> is that actually you can't successfully burn an actual witch at the stake, but I guess muggles were burned. Yeah. So then was the statute of secrecy to protect muggles to like prevent the violent persecution of weird muggles? I think actually fundamentally unclear who is being protected, because also sometimes wizards say it's because if muggles knew about magic, they would be making us fix everything for them all the time, which is also like, well, that's fair. You've cured cancer. Could you tell other? No, no, you don't. You're not going to tell. <laughs> you're not going to tell other people about it. But again, that's like, you know, the final version of the retelling of history that we get culminates in Dumbledore's personal narrative, mm-hmm. like the one the one that he tells Harry. And that is a narrative. It returns back to that, like, it is good versus evil. Dumbledore himself was not pure enough to triumph over Voldemort, but Harry is pure enough Harry is so good that he couldn't be killed twice. So pure and virtuous is he. So clean is his soul. And so, you know, his triumph becomes this sort of metonym for the triumph of the wizarding world exactly as it already is with absolutely no structural changes to it whatsoever and no acknowledgement of the structural conditions that led to the rise of Grindelwald and then Voldemort. There's this real sense that like at the end of the day, as much as Harry is trying to like piece together history, it's much less important to him to understand what really happened than it is to receive a version of historical memory he's comfortable with. What a bummer. Ha <laughs> Yeah, we did it again. We did it, yeah. <laughs> that's how every history class ends is, well, that's, that's a bummer. And it's how every episode of Witch Please ends, so. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Wilfrid Laurier University Press and distributed by ACAST. You can find the rest of our episodes at ohwitchplease.ca. Special thanks, as always, to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach. If you want to hang out with us some more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at... Oh, which please, with a ton of hot new content. Thanks to our Witch Please apprentice, Zoe Mix. Thanks, Zoe. Shira, if people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? I am extremely online. So you can find me on Twitter at Shira Lurie. You can find me on my website, shiralurie.com. 
And if you want to listen to the Zucchini Warriors, yes. we are available wherever you get your podcasts. And we're on Twitter at Zucchini Warpod. And we welcome Americans as well as Canadians. <laughs> but just those two. <laughs> just those two. If you're anywhere else, fuck right off. That's correct. <laughs> that is absolutely correct. <laughs> Thank you also, always, eternally, to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Hey, did you know that at any level of Patreon, you can ask Marcel to name not only your pets, but also <laughs> your cars and household appliances? She'll name anything. It's $2 a month, and she will name anything you want her to. As a, and there's no, like, statute of limitations. It can be something you had, like, 30 years ago. She can name your childhood stuffed toy. Whatever. Whatever. And she's really good at it. So you should go check that out, as well as all of our other tiers and all of our other extremely exciting bonuses at patreon.com slash ohwitchplease. If you're not able to contribute financially, but you still want to lend us a hand, we would absolutely love it if you dropped us a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me say my name, say, nope, sorry, I mean your name. I mean, say your name. <laughs> say your name, say your name. Thanks this week to the Anti-Umbridge League, Shelbs 2019, Valerie Yuska, hmm, v- Valerie Val- Valerius JKA, uh, Sabite 99. Sabitet, Sabitet, 99, Sarah Granger, and Gina.Wina. Thanks, you guys. We'll be back next episode to continue our discussion of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. But until then... Later, witches.